Okay, I think we're ready to begin. We're studying John's Gospel, chapter 3. We've been talking about Nicodemus, and last Sunday we were talking about some contrast between uh, Nicodemus and John the Baptist because it begins to talk about John the Baptist beginning at verse 22. Um, but last Sunday, uh, I began with a certain thought, and I want to begin this Sunday the same with the same thought. And that is that the biggest problem with Christianity today is the same as it was 2,000 years ago. It's no different. And the reason is because God does not change and neither does man. Both of us, uh, God and man, have a nature that cannot change. In Malachi, the Lord said, I am the Lord, I change not. And something we can overlook as we study the Bible is the fact that what is true about God is also true about human nature. Our nature does not change. Even after you get saved, the old man, the old nature that you were born with does not change. Uh, it cannot be converted. You can only die to it because it cannot be changed. And it's very important to understand that. But what we're talking about here is a horrible message. I've tried to stress this point because I think it's an incredibly important point. The message from heaven is preached in most churches as the gospel, which is by definition, it means good news, the good news from heaven. Well, what is true in the realm of Christianity is preaching only the good news and totally excluding the bad news, the horrible message from heaven. And I'm telling you that the scariest book I have ever read in my life is the Bible. I've never read a book that is scarier than the Bible because of what it says about me, because of, of how I'm described in this book. It's horrible. Beyond words to explain. Only God can explain it, and he does. He says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? He says there's none good, no, not one. He says that the vast majority of people ever born are going to go through the wide gate into hell and be tormented in the flames of hell for all eternity to come with no possibility of escape. The other horrible message from heaven is one that's seldom ever mentioned 
in any church anywhere. And that is the epidemic problem of the false profession of faith. In other words, multitudes, multitudes of people in the world believe that they are saved. They believe that they know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But the Lord said, there'll be many that say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not preached in thy name? We're talking about preachers, Bible teachers. Have we not cast out devils in thy name? Which is just another way of talking about witnessing to people so that their life is radically changed and the devils are cast out and Christ Jesus comes in. There have been multitudes that have been preachers and Bible teachers that were just as lost as they could be, that did not know the horrible message from heaven. Wouldn't believe it if you told them. And then the Lord said, there's going to be many that say, we've done many wonderful things in thy name. Many wonderful things. But Christ is going to look at those people and say, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, for I never knew you. Folks, that is a horrible message. It's a horrible message when you really understand the parable of the ten virgins and you realize that people who carry a Bible to church... People who have the lamp of God's word in their hand, but half of those people do not have oil in their lamps, which is a type of the Holy Spirit. The horrible message from heaven is that half of the people who go to church and carry a Bible under their arm are not saved. And so when I tell you that the epidemic problem in the world is the false profession of faith, I'm not the one that came up with that. It's in the book. God wrote it. This is what he had to say. These things that comprise the horrible message from heaven were not understood and were not preached 2,000 years ago by the vast majority of people who claim to know God. Nicodemus was one of them. If you'd gone up to him and challenged him about his being a child of God, he'd have fought you on the street over that. He most certainly did believe that he was a child of God. He was Abraham's seed. He knew the Bible up one side and down the other. He had studied the Bible his whole life. He was a master in Israel. He was a Ph.D. in biblical understanding in terms of humanistic biblical understanding. He did not know the horrible message from heaven that there's none good, and that included him. He did not know that he hated the light. 
And God himself had to tell him. And he did. Nicodemus was a, a man who came to the Lord by night because it's God's way of showing us that this man was in the dark when it came to a knowledge of the truth. And so it is in churches today all over the world. One of the most fortunate things that has ever happened to me as a person is the mercy and grace of God in working behind the scenes in my life to eventually bring me, bringing me to Southern Pines. Uh, to encounter uh, men of God that understood the horrible message from heaven. And when they began to teach it, and I began to hear it, the Lord enabled me by his mercy and grace to understand it and to believe it. And that's when the radical change took place in my life, the radical change. Pastor Kelly said years ago that salvation is a radical change, radical change in a person's life. In such a way that they see themselves in a way they've never seen themselves before. One of the, the greatest evidences of the truth of this book is the description God has given us of what we are like. Because when you go off alone, away from uh, the world, and you just get alone by yourself, thinking about what the Bible actually says in terms of this horrible message. A person that is truly honest will realize they're not a good person. They're not a good person. They will have to agree that behind the scenes, unbeknownst to the onlooking world of people who see you every day, they do not see you as the monster of iniquity that you are. They do not. And most of the time, we don't see it either because we don't want to believe it. We don't want to believe that we're that bad, that we actually deserve to burn in hell forever. That God actually loves us without a cause. There's no reason for him to love us. There isn't. We hated him without a cause. And he loves us without a cause. The only cause that you can come up with as to why Christ would go to the cross and die for us when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly when they were in that state. He died for me 2,000 years ago. I wasn't even born. 
Why would he do that? The only answer the Bible provides is that God is love. And there's no personality in the universe to compare to him. Who would die for an enemy? Jesus Christ did. Who would die for the ungodly? Jesus Christ did. Why would he? Well, you can't find a reason in man. It's non-existent. There's nothing, not one thing, good about man. Folks, I didn't used to understand this, but I do today. And what you're hearing is the truth. It's in this book. It's what it teaches. I challenge anybody to tell me that this is not what the Bible teaches. It most certainly is what the Bible teaches. No person can really enter into the terms mercy and grace apart from this teaching. This is not my teaching. This is God's teaching in this book. It is the teaching of any preacher or any Bible teacher that really studies this book. You cannot come up with a different conclusion. That's not possible. It is not possible. When it came to man at his best state, the Lord gave us an example of it in Luke chapter 18 of the rich ruler who called the Lord good master, and he asked him a question. He said, why do you call me good? He says, there's none good but one, that is God. Well, here was a man, much like Nicodemus, who thought he knew God, but he obviously did not know God because God was talking to him, and he had no clue that God was talking to him. A lot of people have this Bible and read it every day and do not realize that God is speaking to them through this book. He wrote this book. He inspired this book and preserved this book. And he's talking to us in this book. So he doesn't want us to go to some church where some nominal pastor is up there in the pulpit preaching the good news. When if you read the book... It's not good news at all. It's bad news. But I'm going to tell you another thing, just to sort of plow the field here before we get into the substance of what's going to be said this morning. Man by nature is incurably a gambler. We are gamblers. Um, it's in our nature to gamble. As a matter of fact, people love to gamble. As a matter of fact, with a lot of people, it's, it's, uh, it's addictive. There are people who have gone to Las Vegas and gambled on those slot machines and lost just about everything they have. There are people who have 
lost everything they've had and somebody come along and give them some more to help them out because they've lost everything through gambling and they take what somebody gives them and they go back again because they're addicted and they'll gamble again and lose that. There are examples of people, thousands of people really, who have done what I just described. But let me tell you where the gambling is really serious. It's like a guy that was in one of my concealed carry classes a few years ago. There was a man who stayed behind and talked to me a little bit about some of the things that I said in class because he got a little bit convicted, I think, by some of the remarks that were made. And this other man was in there who was an acquaintance of mine and a professing Christian, a professing Christian. Um, and he decided that he would join in to some of the remarks that I was making with this man privately during a break in the class. And this acquaintance of mine, a friend, who professed to be saved, interjected into the conversation what I'm fixing to tell you. He said to this man, he said, well, I'll tell you how I think about it. He said, the way I think about it is it's better to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ than it is to not believe. Because when you come to the end of your life, if it turns out to be true, then you have accepted, at least with mental consent, that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And so if it turns out to be false, it doesn't matter anyway, because you die and cease to exist. But in his opinion, it was better to go the direction of Christianity and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior so that when life is over and you die, if it turns out to be true, then you can enjoy salvation. Folks, that is part of the horrible message from heaven. You'd be surprised at how many people have heard that little uh, description when it comes to salvation. I submit to you that that's nothing more, it's nothing less, rather, than turning the message of this book into a gamble. A gamble. But when you read the Bible, what do you find? What do you find? Well, if you read John's Gospel, 
99 times it uses the word believe. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In 1 John, 39 times you find the word no. Why is that important when it comes to the message of this book? John said, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the only begotten Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're supposed to know that you have eternal life. Well, if you know something, it's not a gamble. This man in that class was trying to tell somebody that I was witnessing to that the message of this book is a gamble. No, it is not. It is not a gamble. And the one thing you do not want to do is come to Calvary Memorial Church and gamble with your eternal soul. You do not want to do that. You see, what that man was saying, that young man was saying to this friend that I was, or this person, this acquaintance that I was trying to witness to, what he was trying to tell him was that the message of this book here is a gamble. That is, now listen to this, that is the equivalent of calling God a liar. It's exactly the same thing as calling God a liar. The message of this book is the truth. There's no gamble about it. He said, no man cometh to the Father but by me. No man. He said, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Folks, that's not an either-or possibility. It might be true. <clears throat> the Lord said, you will not come unto me that you might have life. A person that does not believe that this message from heaven is inspired and preserved by God who is the truth person who doesn't believe it that way is going to lose their soul forever. And there's no doubt about it. I'm so thankful that in my experience, I encountered people who had studied this book and knew the truth of what I'm telling you this morning. I'm not teaching you original thoughts. I am teaching you the book. What's in the book? 
the Bereans were more noble than those from Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. And that's what we need to do. This is what we need to teach other people when we go out and witness to them. Folks, this is no little matter. This is serious business. I think the most criminal act you could ever practice on this side of heaven is having somebody that's dear to you that is lost and on their way to hell to not sit down with them and reason with them if they will let you concerning what is in this book. Because the world has been lied to by most preachers. They're being lied to today. They'll go to church and they'll go out the same way they came in, comfortable. How can a person hear the truth and be comfortable? How can a person radically change from the way they are in their nature to hate their life and love God's life enough to receive it in totality, all that he is in his thoughts and in his ways. Who can do that without a reason that they truly believe and understand? Who can do that? I'm telling you that anybody that has not experienced radical conversion is on their way to hell. I believe that with all my soul. We have to die to everything that we are and receive as a free gift from God everything that he is, everything. And the only way you can get it, and this is the good news, is it's the gift of God. That's the good news. It's the gift of God. And this is what Abraham found in Romans chapter 4. What did Abraham find? He found what I'm telling you this morning. That the only way he could ever have hope in the future, when he died, was to put his faith and trust in the integrity of what God said and Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now, folks, no one can hear these words and say that what you just heard is not true. No one can do that, not with the scriptures in hand. They cannot do it. No one can put their finger on a verse and show you something that is different. They cannot do it. Because God is a genius in writing. There's no one that commands the languages that are known in the world today. And he's the author of every single one of them. It started at the Tower of Babel when God divided everybody. He is the Alpha and the Omega, which simply means that when it comes to writing, when it comes to speaking, 
He is the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This book is written by the genius of the all-knowing God. And he knows what he is saying, and he means what he is saying. He means it. But the reason few people are going to end up being saved is because the horrible message is not being preached. It was not being preached 2,000 years ago, and Nicodemus is a classic example of a man who was bathed in religion but lost. 2,000 years later, all over this town, all over this state, this nation, and the world, people are bathed, immersed in religion, but lost. Lost. And it's no different today than it was when Nicodemus appeared on the scene in John chapter 3. Now, there's a multitude of people that will teach John chapter 3. John 3.16 is one of the favorite verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And most people that go to a church anywhere of any denomination will tell you that they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And what they're talking about is mental consent. Mental consent. Without a radical change. Without a radical change. And the church today is trying to mix it up so that the paradise of heaven and the paradise of the world can be mingled together and not separated so that you can live a public life in the church on the stage, the religious stage, as a professing Christian. But once you leave here and you go back out there into the world, you begin to love the world and the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And every one of us have this problem. Even after you get saved, our nature is drawn back to the world just like the law of gravity. The law of gravity pulls you back down to the earth and it's a law. It's what Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7. He, he had read the law of God's word, which was from heaven. But he said, how to perform that which is the law of heaven, I find not. Because there's another law that operates in me that when I would do good, how to do it, I find not. 
And the reason is because there's another law. It's the law of sin that always pulls me back into the world. And that's what he's talking about. And he's confessing that as a Christian, as one of the greatest Bible teachers there's ever been, he was saying, I'm dealing with this problem every day of my life. I, the Apostle Paul, am dealing with this problem of the influence of the world on me, on my mind, and on my desires. And the only cure that there is for it is dying daily. I have to die every day. Every day. You don't die one time. Because that problem does not go, to, go away when you get saved. This is what confuses a multitude of people when it comes to the message of the Bible. They think that, okay, when I got saved, when I walked down the aisle, I was converted. And so I've been saved from my sin. And about two weeks later, they find that uh, they're not really any different. And they're not. And there never will be. Because the old nature cannot be different. It cannot be different. The only cure for the old nature is death. And we have to willfully die every day to what we are in our nature because that cannot be changed. It cannot be converted. So what is converted well, what is converted is our desire. And it's a miracle <clears throat> of mercy and grace. Where a person has a broken heart over what the Bible actually says, which is a horrible message from heaven. And so, uh, God honors that response of believing it, believing what God says, by giving us a desire that's his. It's his desire. And we discover that what's converted is our desire, but, but it's not our desire. It's his desire that he has given us as a gift. It's the desire of God that he has given us as a gift. The gift of God. Folks, let me tell you something. Apart from the mind of Christ and the life of Christ and the nature of Christ being given to us as a gift, there's no possibility of salvation. The only way that you can enjoy Colossians chapter 1 and verse 22, I think that's the verse. When you get saved, you are made holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Now, how can you be holy? 
How can you be unblameable? How can you be unreprovable for all eternity to come? Well, I can tell you how. Because I read it in the book. It is the gift of God. That is what Abraham found. What did Abraham find? He found the gift of God. He found that he could not ever have enough faith to be what God wanted him to be. He had to receive as a gift from God the faith that God has in himself to do what he promised. And then he could have it. Holiness. Unblameableness. Unreprovableness. It's the only way you can get it. It's the gift of God. That is the gospel. That's the gospel. I don't believe a person can read this book and say that what you just heard is not true. I don't think it's possible. Because this is what God said. The Bereans were more noble than those from Thessalonica because they read what he said. And they knew that what Paul taught them was true. They didn't believe what Paul said was true until they read the book. By this genius author who inspired and preserved the book. That's why I'm telling you, if you've got a Bible, you need to hold this thing close to you. Because this book is the innermost self of the person of the Creator God. You can't get closer to a person than hearing their word. You can be John leaning on his bosom. And not be as close as you can be when you believe his word. Because this is his innermost self. It's not the external bosom. You can embrace Jesus Christ many ways. But the greatest embrace of any person is listening to their words listening to their words so I didn't intend to really go so long but I think that if we do not understand these thoughts we're not going to be prepared to understand the contrast between Nicodemus and John the Baptist and there's a tremendous contrast here between the two Nicodemus uh, he did not know God because God was right there in front of him. But John the Baptist, think about him in contrast. Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. You see the contrast? That's why John the Baptist follows what is said about Nicodemus. Nicodemus did not know God. John the Baptist knew God. 
He sure did. Nicodemus did not know how it was possible to be born a second time when he was old. He didn't have a clue. He, asked, he said that. He made that statement. In verse 4, Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time to his mother's womb be born? He didn't have a clue what it meant to be born again. And this is true in churches today. It's no different. You go up to people and you ask them. They go to church on a regular basis, faithfully, never miss a Sunday, and say, would you explain to me what it means to be saved, to be born again? Most people don't have a clue how to even begin to explain it. Nicodemus didn't know how to explain it. And I'm telling you, he was immersed in religion. <clears throat> Had no clue what Jesus Christ was talking about. And the Lord was t explaining to him what had to happen for him to go to heaven. Well, he was not going to heaven the way he was. It was the Lord's way of saying, Nicodemus, you're so messed up in your thinking and in your works, you're so messed up. I would literally have to recreate you all over again. You would have to die as the person that you are today. I would have to resurrect you from the dead. And I would have to give you what you would need in order to go to heaven. I'd have to give it to you. Because here's what you'd have to have, Nicodemus. You would have to be as holy as I am. You would have to be blameless. You would have to be unreprovable. In my sight, not yours, in mine. And so the question is, how could you ever have those qualities? How could you ever have them? Well, you have to understand what Abraham found. It's the gift of God. Folks, what I've just described is the doctrine of total depravity. A phrase that is heard in most churches but never explained. People have no clue what total depravity is. You have just heard what total depravity is. There is nothing that we can do to deserve eternal life. There is no way that we could ever live in the presence of a holy God unless he gave us the enablement. And so what does he do to give us that enablement? He gives us his life. His life. And this is what Paul was talking about when he said, I'm crucified with Christ. In other words, I'm dead. Christ died for me. I'm dead. 
Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. When Christ is your life, then guess what? You're holy. When Christ is your life, then you're blameless. Just like Christ, he's without sin. He's innocent. He's an eternally innocent one. And you're unreprovable in the sight of God. Not in your sight. In the sight of God. Well, how can anybody ever have that? Well, again, that's what Abraham found. It's the gift of God. The gift of God. Nicodemus did not know that he hated the truth. There's a multitude of people that go to church today and not realize that they hate the truth. And the truth is not just a way of thinking. It's a person. Most people that go to church today would not believe that they hate Jesus Christ. They say, no, I love God. Don't you tell me that I hate Jesus Christ. I love God. Their works betray their testimony. Because they go out of the church, and they go right down here to the bars, and get drunk, go out here and look at bad stuff, bad stuff, and love every minute of it. They live in the dark. They live behind closed doors, away from the audience in the church. And they go back into the world, and they mix it up as though somehow or other God will accept that. Duplicity. James talked about it when he talked about the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Well, what is a double-minded man? A double-minded man is what Nicodemus was. John the Baptist was not. John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. That's not double-mindedness. That's not double-mindedness at all. John the Baptist understood something about holiness. He was filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb. And we'll talk about that a little bit in just a few minutes. But um, Nicodemus... He was of the view that, uh, much like the rich ruler, you know, I've given to the poor, I've done this, I've done that, I haven't broken the law, I haven't committed adultery, I, I haven't done any of those kinds of things. From my youth up, that's what he said in Luke chapter 18. And the Lord said, well, there's one thing you like, just one thing. He said, turn away from your love of money and possessions and come and follow me. Now, again, I say to you that most people who read that passage think 
that the Lord told him there was two things that he needed to do. That's not true. He said, one thing thou lackest. He didn't say two things. Selling everything that he had and giving to the poor would have naturally followed if he had the one thing that he needed. And if you want to know what the one thing was that he needed, it's a little word called me, M-E, me. The one thing he lacked was Christ as his life. That was what he lacked. He didn't have Christ as his life. Well, if he'd had Christ as his life, he would have sold everything that he had, given it to the poor. You cannot mix up the doctrine of salvation with works. It's not of works. Selling what he had would have been works. We're not saved by works. There's but one thing that we need. The life of Jesus Christ. And that's it. Well, John the Baptist was out there baptizing people. Well, what does that mean? Well, baptism is a, a, an outward testimonial of dying to everything that you are. When you put under the water and immersed in the water, completely immersed in the water, it's a picture of dying. And that's God's view of us. There is nothing whatsoever about you as a human being that I would ever desire. My message to you is you would be best off dead. Totally, 100%. Total depravity. Totally dead. Every thought you've ever had, every work that you've ever done, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. Why? Because the farmer that is plowing, that is not saved, is not plowing for God. He's plowing for himself. He's plowing to get fruits to come up so that he can sell it, make money, and finance his own will being done. That's what that verse means. I don't care what you do in life. It is absolutely worthless to God in the way of works. You can't do anything. You can't say, well, I've, I've been a Christian school teacher. I, I've been a preacher. I, I've been a principal of a school. I, I've been a member of this church for ever so many years. God is not impressed. And any person that would ever stand before him and start doing what that rich ruler did and start enumerating all the reasons why you're a good person, you need to read the Bible. You do not want to stand before God and claim that. Let me tell you something. If I die today,
The Bible tells me to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I'm going to tell you one thing. The only thing that I could ever glory in is the cross of Jesus Christ who died for me. His death took care of all my sin, past, present, and future. The second most important thing is Pentecost. Pentecost is when the Holy Ghost came down. And when you get saved, that is the gift of the life of Christ, which you have to have to go to heaven, is the Holy Spirit. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You hear that? If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That is what Abraham found. I'm telling you, one of the most important passages in the Bible is the question. In Romans chapter 4, the first few verses, what was it Abraham found? He found the gift of God as being the only hope that he had. Well, our time is, is gone. Mark, dismiss us, brother.